What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. William Quigley is the CEO of Opskins and Wax. In this conversation, we discuss working at Disney, the importance of monetizing intellectual property, why William's work at Bell Labs Capital got him so excited about crypto early, how video games are monetizing today, and what William sees as the big opportunities for the intersection of crypto and digital skins moving forward. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm here with uh, William. Uh, We're recording this in uh, Los Angeles and Santa Monica. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, you're welcome. For sure. Uh, Let's talk uh, your background, uh, pre-opskins and uh, pre-crypto. Where'd you kind of get started and we can get into opskins? All right, so a really high level, I've been doing venture capital, early stage venture capital. done that for about 20 years. Wow. Prior to that, I was at the Walt Disney Company in the Consumer Products Division, licensing. And prior to that, I worked at a consulting firm called Arthur Anderson. I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of work in uh, uh, financial institutions. Mm-hmm. So, what, what was the Walt Disney Company like working there? I mean, that, that place is just, I think, you know, most people have the consumer experience. Either they've seen the movies, they've seen some of the uh, merchandise, they've gone to the locations, but internally there, you know, you read these books about the culture and just kind of how magical the experience of actually working there is as well. What was that like? Well, I'd say when I was there, that was during the Eisner years, uh, okay. I was the CEO, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, generally uh, work work work. That's what it was. <laughs> there wasn't it wasn't so much. Uh, there wasn't a lot of fun. What I took away from it though was the ability to well, and what Disney does incredibly well is take any property, mm-hmm. any asset, and monetize it infinitely. Yep. Right? That's what Disney does incredibly well. It's the IP almost, right? It's the IP. Yeah. Uh, Disney is an IP holding co, if you think about it that way. Uh, and of course, the ability to make new IP is the is the challenge. But mm-hmm. if you can do it, it as when you can exploit that across billions of consumers mm-hmm. that's where it's it's tremendously valuable mm-hmm. and and if you think about like when i was there in the 80s and the 90s um you know, Disney's uh, initially anyway, when I got there, Disney had no animation studio, which is when we think of Disney, we either think of the theme parks or you think of the animation studio. Yep. But Walt Disney Pictures was basically abandoned. And then uh, in 1989, uh, Roy Disney, the nephew of Walter, uh, decided to release uh, or make this thing called uh uh, Mermaid, Little Mermaid, and uh, everybody went, oh, wow, yeah, really well done animation is uh, very profitable. So so my experience there was first in like um, 
the planning side of the business. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Euro Disney. So that's the theme park. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after a couple of years there, I went to uh, the retail division, Disney Disney store. Mm -hmm. And then I wound up in uh, really the hub of consumer products for Disney. And that was in the uh, merchandise licensing division. Mm And uh, the, the licensing division is an interesting place to, to, to look at because the licensing division takes everything Disney creates and uh, turns it into a service, if you will. You know, all the standard characters, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Pluto, Goofy, each of those can be separately unpundled mm-hmm. and can be licensed to the waffle maker, to the T-shirt maker. Mm-hmm. To the guy who wants to, you know, slap it on a on a video game. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So Disney uh, does an incredibly good job of that managing the IP portfolio. Uh, But it was at Disney where I um, uh, I uh, during that time, uh, the Internet was born. I shouldn't even call it say it was born. It was around for many, many decades. But the Mosaic browser got released. I saw that. I thought it was Incredible. Then uh, uh, Mark Andreessen took that and converted it into uh, Netscape, branded as Netscape. And of course, that began the the consumer Internet revolution. And so I got very anxious uh, and thought, wow, this is um, things like this don't come along that much. So um, I teamed up with two other people and um, one of who. Uh, went to a guy named Bill Gross. Bill Gross worked uh, or created something called Idea Lab, and Idea Lab was the the um, the first of its kind incubator for consumer internet companies. And Bill, um, the term incubator wasn't even used. Mm-hmm. wasn't even There wasn't even a, a concept for what he was doing. Bill was an entrepreneur, Caltech guy, and he also got inspired by the internet and said, I want to do an internet company, a consumer internet company, but uh, there's too many ideas in my head. So he thought, what if I hire like 50 people and get every one of those people to start one of the companies that I'm thinking about? And uh, and so was born Idealab. So it was about a year after Idealab was formed, my partners and I went to him and said, hey, what if um, we could help you finance your companies? Because you're building all of these things. Now, at the time, you have to understand uh, 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 there were no websites or virtually no websites. No VCs had websites. You, you, would, you didn't even know how to reach them, right? They weren't listed numbers. Uh, so we're like, you know, you're going to have a problem getting money and, and especially institutional money. And uh, like a lot of things, Bill is uh, incredibly fast at seeing opportunities. In, in a very short period of time, he was like, I think we should do this. So... Uh, our firm was born. We called it Idea Lab Capital Partners. And uh, raising money for that, by the way, was uh, uh, was uh, very, very hard for people today with the knowledge they have to imagine. Because mm-hmm. if you said, imagine if you started a consumer internet focused venture capital fund mm-hmm. in 1996 and um 
you had an incubator that was coming up with great original ideas. And oh, by the way, no one in the world has a fun, focused on consumer internet. Mm -hmm. Everybody go, well, of course, that'd be great. Yeah, I try to raise money for that because most people were like, well, you know, this seems like it might, might be like a passing fad. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you guys don't really have any experience in venture capital and so forth. So um, sounds a lot like crypto today. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, uh, or especially crypto today is much easier. Uh, maybe crypto twenty eleven, mm -hmm. but um, we uh, we had some early wins, mm -hmm. and Idea Lab became uh, uh, an, an astonishing place for coming up with brilliant business ideas. I mean, Bill Gross invented the concept of ranking your searches based on how much you pay. That company uh, is called was called GoTo. Um, uh, the fastest company I've ever been a part of that went from zero to a billion dollars. Very, very fast. Of course, ultimately, Google um, stole the IP and uh, uh, massive lawsuit, blah, 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 eventually settled for billions of dollars. But they did come out the best, I will say. Uh, they, uh, in fact, I'd say uh, Google does a very good job of stealing things and, and monetizing them. But um, we did very, very well. We really focused a lot on what at the time was odd, which was free services. Okay. You know, free internet, net zero, you know, free free music, uh, freemusic.com, uh, and a lot of other things, which turned out to be very, very practical. So I did that for about, uh, through about 2008. 10. Okay. And the between 2000 and 2010, for your audience who know about venture, uh, they will understand uh, my point of view. But it was a tough time for, for venture capital. Yeah, you had some good companies built during that time. But there was you had the dot-com bubble crashing, you had the telecom bubble crashing, you had the financial crisis. Um, and you really didn't get the impact of mobile until uh, the teens, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a tough, tough period. Basically, only real interesting innovation during the time was Web uh, 2.0, which is basically social. Yeah. Well, um, I was going to say, even like Facebook at the time, kind of end of 2000s, people are questioning, can they make the transition to mobile? Right. Yeah. And, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, the companies that we think of today. One of the few companies that did. Yeah. And there's a great lesson, which we won't talk about in this podcast. But but um, whenever a new transformational technology appears, it is almost always the case that incumbent companies in industries that could use that tech don't exploit it. Mm -hmm. It's new companies that pop up. Challengers. In, in, my, in my space, uh, where I spent a lot of time, the video gaming space, you always see this. Mm -hmm. Every new platform, it's a new group of people because the incumbents don't really want to take the risk. Uh, it was about to get to crypto. Um, uh, I was in the 2000s, I was on the board of a company that... Um, allowed people, it was a marketplace that allowed people to buy and sell virtual items. Mm -hmm. They weren't crypto. They were video game virtual items. Mm -hmm. uh, the founder of that company was the uh, inventor of the concept of trading a virtual item in a game for fiat, you know, mm -hmm. for money. And so I found that very intriguing. I got involved with the company, got on the board. The company was sold. The founder took some time off. He was a technologist. His name is Jonathan. Uh, and uh, in 2010, Jonathan uh, learned about Bitcoin 
And he poked me and one of my other partners to to dive in, and we had no interest, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, and one of the one of the other things uh, about being a venture capitalist is uh, you have scar tissue, and the scar tissue is from prior deals you've done that um, didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And it's a crazy thing because you know logically that they might have been good ideas but executed poorly, but you just get sour on the concept. Mm-hmm. So a concept I was sour on was uh, uh, magic internet money. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, there were a couple of companies that tried to and did create their own currencies Mm -hmm. and tried to popularize them. And that was needed because of this desire we all had for micropayments. And in a nutshell, the concept of micropayments is Somebody can sell you something, maybe viewing a piece of content, maybe a little game that at a price so low that you would pay because it's not much, but also that uh, could be efficiently done through the existing payment networks. And uh, Bitcoin and payments, of course, are very closely aligned, though they're not completely the same thing. Um, But what your audience should know is that... uh, it is very expensive to do a transaction. You know, very expensive. You couldn't do, we all dreamed, oh, five cents, 10 cents, 25 cents. If you've ever noticed, no companies online allow you to buy something for 25 cents. The reason is because the 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 discrete payment event is too expensive. Mm-hmm. It has to be above a certain amount to make it justified. So um, I was sort of interested in, in, in um, payments, these uh, micropayment companies in the 90s, they turned out not to work out so well, mainly because people were like, yeah, but we're giving you all of our money and you're issuing us these little tokens. And uh, there wasn't a blockchain. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a decentralized ownership structure where we didn't have to give all the money to one group and hope that they're going to keep it and manage it and so forth. So um, it took me a couple of years until I was in Singapore, I was talking to a gal who was running another video game um, digital item marketplace. And she asked me, hey, what do you think about Bitcoin or thinking of using it? And I came back to U.S. and I thought, you know, that's the second smart person who's really pushed me on this. So I called up my uh, former partner, Jonathan, and said, hey, give me uh, one more pitch. And after a couple of hours, I was sold. And from that point on, uh, uh, he and I and a third partner uh, did nothing but crypto. Really? I did nothing but for crypto for probably uh, yeah, all of 2012, 13, 14, 15, call it about four years. Okay. Right? And uh, uh, so we had a, um, we did everything in crypto. We invented new crypto concepts. We uh, we did, uh, we launched uh, crypto payment processors, uh, crypto debit cards, crypto wallets, mm-hmm. um, uh, anything that you could see in the, let's say like the traditional world, the internet world. Mm-hmm. If it existed there, we considered doing it again, crypto. but in a blockchain based model. Yeah. And it, um, it's interesting you say this because uh, I talk a lot about Many of the companies that appear to be successful today and and I think areas that I'm excited about moving forward 
they're not necessarily new business models. They're not necessarily new mechanisms to conduct transactions, et cetera. It's just being done in a much more digitally native way. So That's right. there's been exchanges previously. We now have these digitally native exchanges for digitally native assets, right? Payment processors used to be fiat currencies. Now we can do it for digital currencies, right? You just can go down the line and you see every single one of these businesses just being rebuilt in the digital world. Yeah. I actually think that's a really very, it's a very simple idea, but it's powerful when you start to say, okay, well, what hasn't been digitized yet, right? How, how do I go build a business that just takes the models yes. that we know that work just in the digital world, right? Yeah. And, and so whenever you have a new platform, you have, you have the, the privilege of doing what you just said. Mm -hmm. It's like you move to a new undiscovered territory. They need roads. They need hospitals. They need schools, right? Uh, they need uh, factories and everything else. And you just rebuild it. So it doesn't take much originality. You know, that's, that is a privilege that's quite rare. We saw that at the dawn of the internet, right? Mm -hmm. You have a, 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 a mail order catalog. Well, kind of the first e-commerce sites are pretty much just mail order catalogs, mm -hmm. right? So I, I call that concept a, a, a paving over cow paths, mm -hmm. right? There's an existing cow path. You just pave it over and make it a little better, mm -hmm. right? Well, uh, that is essentially what we did uh, for the first like three and a half years. Mm -hmm. We just took existing concepts that we knew were working and said, let's uh, build one with a blockchain uh, backbone. And, and, and one thing I would say about that is we did also apply another test, which, which even to this day is not done enough. And the test is um, how will a blockchain make this experience materially better for the consumer? Mm -hmm. So what you will see a lot of, of course, is People who say, hey, I can do this with a blockchain, mm -hmm. so I'm going to. But generally speaking, applying a blockchain to an existing business makes that business worse mm -hmm. because there's only a handful of things today for which blockchain is good. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a bad approach for a lot of others. So you do have to be thoughtful about that. And we were. And uh, 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 the only other thing I'll say here is that in um, mid-2015, we uh, started to feel like, well, you know, there's lots of money you can make and, and it's exciting to work in this new platform. The consumer adoption wasn't happening, not, not the way we saw with the Internet. And so we started to think about how that might be accelerated. Mm -hmm. And what do you know? We thought, wow, you know, there's another industry where people also have virtual items, mm -hmm. they store them and they trade them and they trade them for money. And there's hundreds of millions of people who do that. And that's the virtual item trading industry in the video game business. Mm -hmm. So we're like, why don't we go and apply this blockchain stuff to that? It, this is really important, right? Because uh, one thing that I talk a lot about when we talk to these institutional investors is, um, what we're talking about is three things when it comes to the blockchain or crypto world today, right? It's digitally native assets with digitally native accounting, which is a blockchain, and then digitally native contracts, which is programmable smart contracts, right? The digitally native assets we've actually had for a long time, right? Music files are digital assets, right? You know, skins, all these different things are digital assets. 
The problem was we couldn't have financial instruments as digital assets because of the double spend problem, the ability to duplicate computer files, et cetera. Once we had the blockchain, now all of a sudden those digitally native assets can be financial instruments or they can be non-financial instruments, right? And I think that part yes. of the the uh, assets in video games, right, are their non-financial instruments that have a value and people are willing to exchange monetary value for them. But you don't necessarily need a blockchain, but in some cases you may want one, right? And I yes. think that understanding when to apply it and when not to apply it is almost as important as being able to apply it. Yes. And what I'll say about that, because it's an important point, is so you're right. In 1998, my partner, Jonathan, uh, traded a um, Ultima online virtual asset for cash. <laughs> and so you're like, well, it's a digital asset. It went between accounts. People got fiat money for it. Well, wow, isn't that just like crypto? Well, the difference is, and you talk about music, uh, It's this is in the same category, for most of the uh, the world's digital assets, they're in centrally controlled repositories, yep. right? So a music uh, uh, licensing company or a music distributing company like, like uh, uh, Amazon or Apple, they control the terms on which you can engage with that, that uh, digital property. Yep. And they don't like you reselling it for instance. And oh, by the way, um, you don't own that when you buy it. Mm -hmm. You license it. Mm -hmm. Almost all digital assets in the world are licensed. Mm -hmm. and, and, and even applying the word license is an insult to the word license because these licenses are so restrictive. Mm -hmm. And so now what's happening is uh, the blockchain comes along and it says, if you use this blockchain platform as the creation tool mm -hmm. for these digital assets, then there is no central authority who owns them. And you, as long as you have your secret code and you can access it, you own that thing outright, mm -hmm. no license mm -hmm. to do what you want to with it. So that is the big contribution the blockchain provides. It is a way for people to truly own these digital assets. So the venture capitalist uh, 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 person in me says, okay, so um, what do I think of, of, of the future of digital assets? Mm -hmm. Is that a growth industry? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is. <laughs> it's very much a growth industry. Just think about one little sliver of this uh, globally, which is the video game industry. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the the market for uh, in-game virtual assets, uh, trading those things, and there were a few companies that let you trade them. Most said that's a violation of our license, but it was about $10 billion, right? And today, uh, 2019, it's it's... $50 billion and growing very fast, very fast, just the trading of those digital assets. Mm -hmm. And so now that we can put them on platforms where if you own them, they're yours for as long as you want. They're not a license. You're much more likely to buy something and to uh, to want to own it if you know it can't be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And so this is the thing I think that's going to really 
be um, helpful for the video game industry. Mm-hmm. Initially, of course, like I said earlier, anytime a new transformative technology gets introduced to an industry, the incumbents say, we're doing fine, thanks, and they try to ignore it because who wants to have to learn some new thing and whatnot? And because it probably means they're going to have to modify their business model. Mm-hmm. People don't want to do that. So what is happening today is you have thousands of little developers, uh, small little publishing studios that are saying, we may be existing businesses, but you know we're not top dogs. So why don't we take a chance with this new tech and maybe something will happen? The same way a lot of small developers in 2010, 11, 12 said, maybe we should try building our game in a mobile environment. And you know what do you know? They could be very, very big because you don't have a whole bunch of entrenched big incumbents trying to get you. So what we're seeing right now is thousands of small uh, video game publishers experimenting with the blockchain as the place where they're creating these digital items. We thought this was going to happen. We initially in 2015, when we were trying to find how can we kind of get involved in something that's going to push the mass market adoption of crypto. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we thought a very good fit would be doing something with video game virtual items. So initially, we set out to build a marketplace to trade uh, video game virtual items built on a blockchain. Eventually, we decided, you know what, why don't we buy something or partner with somebody? We partnered with uh, two young guys who had built something called Opskins, Mm -hmm. which was a marketplace for buying and selling video game virtual items. And uh, uh, the more we, we looked at it and evaluated, the more we said, wow, this is a really good platform. We uh, ultimately wound up acquiring it. Uh, We run it. And as we have been running Opskins, we started to say, all right, what are the building block tools Mm -hmm. that we need to create a blockchain-based, kind of decentralized version of what Opskins Mm -hmm. does? So let's talk about what Opskins actually does for all the people that don't understand, and then we can talk about how you kind of unbundle the different components. So uh, if people are familiar, there's a marketplace, it's called eBay. And eBay allows you to list an item up on their site, and then either through an auction model or just by setting a fixed price, people can go up to the site, say, yeah, I'd like to buy that. The seller, uh, you contact him, the seller sends you his goods and so forth. So eBay basically empowers the ability for the buyer and the seller to connect for the purchase, and then eBay leaves it to the buyer and the seller to coordinate the logistics of transferring the item. Yeah, they're a matchmaking marketplace. And um, so... Uh, Opskins is like eBay, but for virtual items, mm-hmm. right? So uh, instead of it being, I don't know, a Pez dispenser, we sell a video game virtual item. Mm-hmm. And uh, sellers go and list all their items for sale, kind of just like eBay, except our items are digital. Buyers come, say they want to buy it. And um Uh, The only difference between us and eBay in this regard is we actually handle the payment part of it. Mm -hmm. So you pay us and then we take that item and send it to the buyer and we give the money to the seller. So let's talk about the types of assets, right? Because I think people hear digital assets, they hear skins, right? But they don't actually know what that means. Walk us through those sellers that are putting items up. What exactly are they selling? 
Yeah. So first, if you're if you if you're all familiar with uh, video games, you will often video games, not always, but often you will have a character when you play and that character uh, can have different attire. Mm -hmm. Right. Different shoes, different hat, different jacket or whatever. Uh, you can actually buy from the video game company that attire. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh Sometimes it might be a magic sword. Sometimes those uh, virtual items have some utility value in the game that allow you to do something better in the game. Jump higher, run faster, whatever. And so just so I'm clear, this means that I have a character in, let's say, a kind of a first shooter game, right? So my character is running around shooting at something. I can have them have a green shirt, a blue shirt, yep. you know, kind of just the, the just the aesthetics can change. Or I can have them, hey, you can have a sniper rifle or a handgun or a grenade launcher, yep. right? Kind of different functionality to the accessories. But also there's things like um, you could get a shield and that shield could make it harder for somebody to shoot you, right? It makes you better at the right. game, right? There, there's kind of different components from the clothes they wear to the items and accessories that they have to actually different functionalities, what you're talking about, right? right? And so this... This next concept is difficult often for people to, to comprehend, mm -hmm. but I'm going to try, which is you did a good job of explaining that. There's two types of virtual items. Those that are strictly of cosmetic value. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the tie you wear. And then there are those that provide utility, mm -hmm. the sword. When back in the 2000s, when I was involved with the, uh, the first video game yep. marketplace, Almost all virtual items were virtual items that had utility value. Oh, interesting. Right? Okay. Utility value. They made they allowed you to do something better. In 2012-ish, um, somebody said, hey, um, very, very smart somebody, by the way, said, we're selling these virtual items that give you all these capabilities. Um what if we sold you virtual items that just changed your appearance? Mm -hmm. All right. No utility value, just no simply value. preference of the person who's playing the game. I want it to be a man. I want it to be a woman. I want it to have a red shirt, a blue shirt, a green shirt, or no shirt. Yes. So I'll just say this. When I discovered that, it blew my mind. <laughs> and I said to my partners, whatever the size of the market for items that give you utility, the size of the market for things that are of strictly cosmetic value will be orders of magnitude bigger. Yeah. And the reason is simple. The reason is that um, how many lawnmowers do you need? Mm -hmm. That's an object that gives you value and utility. Yep. How many, I don't know, snow shovels do you need, right? How many cutting boards do you need? Things that offer utility value, you need one of. Mm -hmm. Maybe a spare, but yep. you need one of. Now I ask you, uh, how many ties do you own? Mm -hmm. Now you say, well, I need a thing to wrap around my neck and hang in front of my shirt, right? But why do we have a hundred of them? Mm -hmm. I don't know. They all provide the same utility, they just look different. Yes, how many t-shirts? Or for many of us, how many shoes do you have, right? <laughs> you need to wrap your shoes and make them warm when you walk out. Then why do you have 100 of them? Why do you have 200 of them? Because these are things that allow us to express ourselves. Mm -hmm. And humans have an infinite like desire to mm -hmm. continually express themselves. There's 
Uh, one standard for like measuring time, but many people have hundreds of watches, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's that part of it in a advanced capitalistic society where we put a lot of our time and energy. So the most valuable virtual items uh, in video gaming are ones where a they are cosmetics, mm-hmm. so they add no value of, from a utility standpoint, and b they're they're rare. Mm-hmm. And then the closer you go from rare to one of a kind, mm-hmm. that's unique, uh, often the higher the value. So there are items that may go for $25,000 to $50,000 that we sell. These are literally just what you, you called skins. Mm-hmm. So instead of calling them virtual items, uh, the industry, and I, I, I like the way we uh, developed this parlance, Virtual items that have utility, we call virtual items. Okay. Virtual items that have no utility, that are strictly for cosmetic uh, value, we call skins. skins. And that makes sense, right? You change your skin. Mm-hmm. And so skins themselves are tradable. Mm-hmm. And, in- and and what you mean by that is uh, you have a character in a game and you make them put on a red jacket that has some special signature on yeah, it. Yeah, if or we some- want to be practical, yep. I would say it's it's mostly the skins, uh, 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 a lot of them tend to be what you wrap your weapons in. Okay, oh, explain right. that more. Okay, so you will have an olive drab appearing uh, M4 rifle, okay. right? Like a military rifle. Olive drab, Salgar. Then someone comes along with a really cool like red and blue designed uh, artwork, right? Interesting. Gaudy, generally looking. Yep. <laughs> um, well, depending on the color scheme, depending on who designed it, depending on how rare it is, that might be worth ten thousand dollars. You might have a karambit, a knife, mm-hmm. right, or a dagger, and uh, there may be some emerald, sparkling emerald mm-hmm. color pattern, right? That might be three thousand dollars. It's the same thing that we see in the real world, right? It is. P- people want to make their gun look special, or they want that really rare knife that has some story behind it. Now it's just happening in the digital world, not just in the analog world. Yeah, it's, I, I have a lot of fun with it when uh, people who are not video gamers uh, uh, are questioning me about this and how can this possibly be? And what I usually do is I look and I'll say, well, you've got a, a thing. It's a, it's a little object on your finger. Uh, that's a diamond. Yeah. OK. Uh, what does it do for you? Does it make you run faster? <laughs> does it make you smarter? That doesn't have any value whatsoever from a utility standpoint. No. Uh, but uh, there's some non-physical value there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess some some emotional value, mm-hmm. sentimental value. Uh, you can't, it's not physical. It's just sort of like it makes you feel better. And that thing has tremendous value to you. Mm-hmm. So we see this all the time. Shoes, right? I mean, look at the sneaker craze mm-hmm. going on right now. Thousands of dollars for, you know, putting something on your feet that you could probably spend $10 for. But that particular one is of a certain brand, a certain rarity, a certain color pattern. And uh, so that's that is here. Here's what's interesting. Uh, Years ago, uh, video game companies made money by making video games and selling them. Okay, and that most of your audience can say, yep, that makes sense, right? So then a concept was born first in Asia called free to play. Free to play, yep. Free to play meant you you they gave it to you for free, but while you're playing, if you want to look cool, you can buy some skins. If you want some magic powers, you can buy some virtual items. So um 
I, I don't know the exact numbers, but suffice to say, maybe 10 years ago, the video game, global video game revenues was $25 billion, mm-hmm. and now it's $150 billion Wow. Globally, annually. And... Um, uh, I mean, that, that that alone is the size of the crypto market to some degree, right? Yeah, the, mar- the entire the market, market cap. Yeah, the market cap. <laughs> and, and further, the... Um, uh, 100 billion of the 150 billion is virtual items and skins. Wow. So you Two can thirds. just, yeah, you can see. So when we, when we talked a little bit ago about like where are virtual items headed mm-hmm. and why might we be interested in investing in tools and blockchains that can make, uh, you know, trading and holding and creating virtual items better, it's because we're seeing in these little pockets. Mm-hmm massive value being shifted from traditional real world assets mm-hmm. to the non-physical. And uh, uh, the the uh, millennial generation, I think, really went in big. Mm-hmm. Gen Z now is doing it even more. What we're seeing is more and more value. Uh, and this goes from, by the way, from video games to Fortune 500 companies. Uh, in 1970, I think... Uh, the, the value of, of the S&P 500 was, if I remember right, about 85% of the value of the S&P 500 was physical things, mm-hmm. plant, equipment. Um, today, I think about 16% of the value of the S&P 500 is physical things. The rest is non-physical. Yeah, that's it's, a crazy it's, set. It's software licenses. It's intellectual property. Mm-hmm. It's the value of contracts. So, so part of the reason why I love doing this podcast is because I get people like you who have these very, very deep expertise and knowledge in certain areas that I know little about. Um, so I'm going to go really deep down the rabbit hole just out of personal curiosity. But when you talk about some of these skins, has a market developed around like the artist behind the skins, right? We see in the physical world, you know, a Picasso is worth more than something else, right? Yeah. Or some artist gets uh, a premium. Do we yet see, uh, oh, you know, William created these skins and therefore there's a premium? Or has that market not really developed around who the creator of the digital skin is? It definitely exists. Okay. Uh, uh, so Clegg FX, uh, Chris Lee, he is uh, one of the world's, top skin designers interesting and uh he uh, he's designed stuff for us uh and yeah if uh clegg fx designs something right away it's going to be considered important or special Mm -hmm. right uh because it's just like anything else there are certain people who have a way of things right uh it's like nike right you you have a pair of sneakers i got a pair mine has a check yours doesn't somehow mine are more more valuable absolutely so as it turns out chris uh, lee uh also designs patterns for nike for uh for the streetwear and and you know, streetwear mm-hmm. and crypto are coming together. Absolutely, uh, uh, all of these uh, these like uh, consumer trends are finding their way onto the blockchain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to answer your question, it's not as much as you would think just okay. yet. Uh, mostly, what it is is it's the video game company. Um, laying out sort of a template and saying, hey, this type of skin is going to be rare and uh, is going to be done maybe by certain really qualified artists, but you're more looking at it as uh, the the video game manufacturer. Mm -hmm. You don't see as much independent people Mm -hmm. who just create a skin 
and say, look at this. And part of the reason for that is because what we talked about earlier, these um, video game companies are mostly closed gardens. You Mm -hmm. know, they're walled gardens. I can't generally make a skin and say, hey, why don't you, Mr. Video Game Company, use my skin? Why don't you support it in the game? Yeah, why don't you support it? Uh, We at Wax are pushing that concept. Got it. Yeah. And, and then what about, um, do we see the reverse, right? So what we just talked about was a independent artist creates a skin and then they get some premium because they're the ones who created it. What about the opposite? So Disney says, hey, we're going to take our uh, Mickey Mouse and we're then going to license it into some skin format that then is used in video games. Or have we not seen the kind of traditional IP actually get licensed into this format? Yeah, I mean, you saw that. I think, uh, uh, was it uh, Fortnite did a collab with... with, uh, Marshmallow, uh, 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 Marvel, and uh, okay. Thanos, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you you see that, but that is we are light years away yep. from that. And and of course, what we know just from capitalism is when you start to remove these artificial barriers, mm-hmm. and people are free to collaborate and mm-hmm. mix and mash. Uh, you create way more interesting things. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet because today most video game companies are are built um, as uh, as closed stacks, mm-hmm. and so this gets back to blockchain. So building elements of your video game with blockchain technology, uh, where you can and invite people who have uh, virtual objects designed independent of your game mm-hmm. to invite them to come in and use that in your game that is a it's a it's an attractive proposition mm-hmm. to a lot of video game people um, I think it's even attractive to some video game developers mm-hmm. who are more experimental but we are still, still early days. There. it's kind of like when you know when uh, Apple first came out with the uh, with the the App Store, uh, there was no streaming, right? Mm-hmm. You were taking and buying those songs, and that in itself was almost a, a heretical event. Unbundling from the LP, you know, uh, the individual song. Um, well, to so go the, from there to streaming, even harder. Th- th- this reminds me, I, I recently learned about, and, and uh, I should caveat all this with, uh, I used to play lots of video games as a kid, but over the last decade or so, I have not played nearly enough to be well-versed in this. But one of the things that um, somebody recently explained to me that I found fascinating is in Fortnite, which is you know one of the most popular games in the world, uh, they have this creator mode. And it's basically you can't bring things from outside of Fortnite into Fortnite, but you can go in and they've provided tools for people to build um, different landscapes, different structures, right? They kind of can create some IP or customization within the game. And so it's still locked in that closed system, it sounds like. But that is it almost feels like inching towards this idea of empowering people to create and really uh, build things that they find interesting with tools that are provided yeah, well, to video, them. video game people are really good at ripping off other people uh, <laughs> that. so what that is is that's called Fortnite meets minecraft right mm-hmm. that's just yep uh, they saw the minecraft mechanic they're like oh for the for your audience doesn't know minecraft uh, think of it as like lego building blocks in okay. a game you can kind of construct stuff uh they thought that was cool and uh um, uh, 
uh, video game companies also are incredibly risk averse mm-hmm. when it comes to new mechanics. Okay. So they wait till they see one guy do it and he succeeds and then they're like, oh, let's copy and it. And they all do it. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I see your point. It's like, well, they're allowing some creative expression on the, the player's part to do something in their platform. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, the reason why I think it's interesting is, so my understanding is today, if you go in and you use this creator mode or whatever, and let's say you build some, you know, really interesting fort, right? Or, or whatever you build, some, some building structure, you get to use that in your experience. And then if people play the game with you, they also can use it. But in that world, imagine if the structure you created, you could then sell to other players and say, hey, do you want this thing that I built, right? And you know, you just pay me in whatever, whether it's the Fortnite V-Bucks or some other form of payment. All of a sudden, you know, I'm fascinated by the idea of giving people tools, right? So if you think of Uber, we give somebody a mobile app, they then have a business, right? Imagine if we could just give these creative people a tool to then build digital creative, you know, assets. And then they they build a business out off of it, right? And and it just feels like that could be very, very big. Yeah, I I think there are some companies that embrace some of those concepts and and. There's another version of this. It's, um, uh, you remember, I'm sure, uh, game mods. Mm -hmm. The concept of a game mod is where you modify the game, where the publisher says, hey, you can take the game. And you know what? Put that software on your own server. And um, here's an idea. Make gravity 0.5 of what it is now. Mm -hmm. And so people can run faster, they can jump higher or whatever, and you screw around with it. So certain game uh, publishers over the years have uh, have kind of uh, promoted that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're you're not you're not really you're not messing with the with the main game. You're just taking a a copy of it, if you will, putting it over here and doing your stuff, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like forking a blockchain. Yep. Well, you're sort of forking a game. Uh, so there's elements of that, which and I always like when video games uh, allow you to do that. Um, but blockchain, of course, is a whole nother level where uh, the the objects uh, used in the game, created maybe even in the game, you are free to take and do what you wish with them. Mm-hmm. Now we've done that with wax, for instance. Mm-hmm. So we created uh, virtual items and uh, skins. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- uh, they just have cosmetic uh, value. And we work with a couple of companies. Uh, These are all like alpha stage, really early stage. But uh, they can take those. If you have a cool looking, uh, you know, uh, uh, camouflage skin for your weapon, you can bring that camouflage skin into the game and put it on another weapon in the game. Now, if you... If you happen to have spent a thousand dollars on that thing and it was made by uh, Chris Lee and people note it and in video gaming, like in the real world, your social status is often marked by what you are wearing, you mm-hmm. know, the skins you have. Mm-hmm. So being able to port those from one game to another, uh, most video game people would say that'd be incredible. Yep. Uh, so you can do that on blockchain. Uh, and as I said, it'll take a while for many of these companies to open that up if they ever do. And, and so I'm going to go to an extreme example of I think what you're you're getting at. So if I play uh, a first shooter game, I've got, you know, whatever my outfit is, right? It, it's a very specific look. I then could take that same character and bring it to 
a sports game and I could play basketball with that same character. I don't think that would happen. Okay, all right. Ex- you explain. could take you could take your wardrobe that you dressed that character Got with. Got the it. hat, the gloves, the pants, the shoes, and then maybe go into another game. Got now, it. Now, yes, uh, uh, that's that's more likely. Mm-hmm. It could be that you could bring your character, but you can understand that it gets very complicated mm-hmm. in the game mechanic yep. if if that character isn't accounted for. <laughs> yeah. Well, well so here, here and again, uh, this is me going really deep down the rabbit hole, but if you take uh, the technology out of it, so let's just say we can wave a magic wand and make the tech work, right? Yeah. Just from the structure standpoint. Uh, if you look at something like a Bitmoji, right? Where we yeah. basically, you digitize yourself to some degree and there's some preset things, right? So you're holding different signs, you're having different emotions, all this stuff. You might want to say what Bitmoji it, is. Yeah. Well, so Bitmoji is basically an emoji, but it's of yourself. Instead of it being the um, the default uh, things that you get in your keyboard, it's basically a, of literally a picture of you doing the same things. A close approximation. Of <laughs> as, as good of an artist as you can make it, right? But, but it, it would be very interesting if you could have a digital representation of yourself and you could play your as yourself in Fortnite, or then you could go to a basketball game and play basketball as yourself right and, and kind of continue to uh, go in and out of these games now to your point there's a lot of incentives that may the game developers may not want you to do this right there's a lot of things that from a technology standpoint may make it difficult to actually do um, but when you get into this digital world there's a lot of possibility right yeah i just it feels to me kind of as an outsider looking in, we're in the very, very early days of this. And, yes. and it's going to take years for this stuff to develop until, you know, what I think a lot of the ideas that are floating around today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I uh, as a venture capitalist, you really have to look out really 10 years, mm-hmm. right? You have to say, because uh, it's very hard to build things. Uh, for anyone here listening who's an entrepreneur, I mean, five years goes by very fast. You don't change much in five years. So you got to think like 10 years plus. And if you start to think in that time horizon, then you can start to see, you know, this should be possible. The processing power should be high enough. The connectivity rate should be high enough where we can do, because most of the the interesting stuff is being done with massively multiplayer online games mm-hmm. where there's a million people playing across the world in these. They're almost like virtual countries. So you can you can start to imagine a lot more technical abilities to do the sorts of stuff that you can dream because it's very easy to dream it up. It, it, it's hard to actually do it with current technology, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff we want to. Um, uh, so I, I, I think... When I look out like uh, uh, five to 10 years, I think a lot of the stuff we're talking about will be uh, in existence. You you will have uh, groups of game companies where uh, a lot of the virtual objects are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will have, and this is the more important part, a culture where um, it is... uh, it's fine for the consumer, the video game person, to actually own the virtual items that they spent good money for, mm-hmm. right? And I can already see it uh, where people are like, wow, I can, I own my Bitcoin, I own my Ethereum, or I own my Wax, and that's digital, and that's 
that's transferable and uh, has recognized value. So tell me why, again, why I can't on my virtual skin uh, that I use for putting on a sword. Mm -hmm. Like it uses the same technology. The only thing different there, which of course is everything, but the only thing different is business model. Mm -hmm. And what you find with um, what you find in uh, in in business and in, in all I think this is true globally, is any, any business can adapt to the introduction of a new technology. It might be hard, whatnot, but you can. They can adapt to the introduction of, um, of new competitors, mm -hmm. and they can adapt to even new regulations. Mm -hmm. Those things are all uh, survivable, but it looks like the introduction of a new business model is, is really like an extinction event. Mm -hmm. It's very hard mm -hmm. for existing businesses in an existing industry with practices that they've become accustomed to, to adapt to a new business model. Mm -hmm. Usually it, uh, it wipes out the incumbents, mm -hmm. you know? And you see this again and again and again. And so, one reason why I absolutely have, have sympathy for any industry that's looking at, let's say, the blockchain as a technology and thinking that's interesting and we can see the value it might bring. But what are the risks to our existing franchise mm -hmm. if we adopt it? And, and we all know the rule of unintended consequences, right? It's a scary thing. And, and so we could, all we have to do is look back at the internet and, and in fact, you know, ask people in the music publishing business, right? What happened when people were free to uh, transfer their MP3 formatted files using Napster and these other peer-to-peer -peer systems? Well, it, it, it basically devastated the industry. Uh, now, it doesn't always have to be. So I mentioned I used to work at the Walt Disney Company. Well, um, a few years before I got there, this thing called uh, uh, VHS and Betamax, you remember the little video cassettes, that, that technology was created. And the original view of the movie studios was we must stamp out this technology. Can you imagine people will be able to record on their TVs our movies mm -hmm. and then they'll be able to watch them. They'll never have to go into a movie theater. And in fact, um, the studios came together and they sued uh, Sony, right? And said, Sony, you're the maker of, I think it was VHS. Uh, you're going to wipe us out. And uh, they lost. Uh, and... Uh, the funny thing is, when I was at Disney, the most profitable uh, part of the business was uh, DVDs and VHS cassettes. Amazing. Uh, right? I mean, uh, I remember still when uh, the Bambi uh, movie was re-released, the Disney at that time re-released the movies every seven years. Uh, I think it contributed like 9% of our quarterly income, that 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 release. So wow. there's an example of a transformative technology that all the incumbents feared that, you know, God forbid now, if they can't sell their movies to Netflix or to, mm -hmm. at the time, Blockbuster, that was a major blow. Mm -hmm. um, 
And even the internet, it could go both ways too. It, it brought lots of efficiencies. I have always felt like the um, a lot of incumbent industries looked at blockchain, uh, not necessarily as this is dangerous, but as we don't know which way it could go. So we'd prefer not to support it. Yeah. The, the thing to me is uh, it's the innovator's dilemma for sure, right? It's just you're addicted to something that's working and you think it's going to last forever. And no matter if you know about the innovator's dilemma or not, you just succumb to it almost every time. Um, the part to me that is so interesting is uh, actually companies like Disney, in, in my opinion, um, they've seen the idea that the technology they use is not the defendable thing. Right. If you think of it's the IP. Right. So That's Mickey right. Mouse, whether Mickey Mouse is in a uh, stuffed animal, is physically walking around in a costume at the Disney uh, location, is in a movie on VHS, DVD, streaming, etc. Mickey Mouse is the valuable asset. And then it can take all these different formats. Right? right. And so the uh, Disney is actually the perfect example of understanding as technology evolves, we're going to take our IP and we're just going to apply it to new technologies. Now, if you go and you look at a whole bunch of technology companies, they actually get addicted to the technology and they lose sight of that new technology is simply evolutionary. And if you could just hop from technology to technology as they become kind of the latest and greatest, you have much more staying power. I mean, Disney has been an incredible company for you know a century, yep. right? And, and, uh, and it only seems to be growing bigger and more powerful and kind of uh, just you know, building Fox, building the moat <laughs> and <right>? Marvel. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's just it, I really have started to think about um, this idea that blockchain technology as an underlying tech is important, but it's what do you how do you apply it? Of course. Right. And, and, and I think that this digital world, right, all the video games, the skins, et cetera, um, it's misunderstood by a wide degree of people. But it is the perfect place for the integration of blockchain and an application because all you're doing is you're now switching out the underlying infrastructure. And when you switch out that infrastructure, it actually empowers what people already want to do. They just previously have been stopped from doing it. Right. So this idea of like now you can own this asset, take it across platforms, you can take it in and out of games, right? All of this stuff. The tech's here now. Now, yes. whether the video game developers will allow it, right? There's a whole bunch of things that have to happen for it to kind of reach mass adoption. But things that you think, you know, you guys are working on uh, with Opskins and Wax is empowering something that is pretty powerful if this thing comes together how I think, you know, you believe it's going to happen and, and I'm increasingly believe will happen. Yeah, I, I'll... I'm make some comment on what okay. you just said, which, uh, so I, I tend to agree though, that, uh, in fact, I hate when, when, when we categorize companies as technology companies, because <laughs> virtually all companies, depending on how, uh, you define technology, I mean, a lead pencil is technology. I was say, a piece of paper is a piece of technology. <laughs> yeah. We're all, we're all in technology companies, but yeah, to, to embrace a particular technology, hey, mm -hmm. I'm a Flash game developer, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm a iOS or Android game developer. I think that's where it gets dangerous because these technologies always evolve. New ones come along that are better. And uh, you need to be contributing something other than the 
mechanism that the technology uses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us VCs as well, we get sometimes really caught up in the tech Mm -hmm. and uh, lose sight of the fact that the value in all of the greatest companies on earth has very little to do with the technology. In rare cases, maybe you've got Qualcomm, which has a great franchise for its uh, WCDMA licensing. But for most part, it is the culture and it's the people and it's the way you have um, integrated the business model into the system to, to, to extract value. And so because of that, I've wondered uh, I wondered why it was taking so long uh, for blockchain technology to get adopted. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, as a society and as societies across the world, we've gotten pretty good at migrating from one tech, you know, flash to another mobile uh, developers are pretty quick to get retrained and learn the next thing. Blockchain itself, it seems like has there's been like a pause button push. So why is it taking so long? And I think one of the challenges is because blockchain is so, uh, so different from everything else that most people, developers, business people are used to when it comes to some new piece of technology they want to incorporate in their business. It's different because... uh, uh, the the tech itself is very basic, right? It's it really is. It's 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 essentially just saying we've got a giant database, almost like a, a, a spreadsheet, and we are going to allow people to move around uh, objects from one account to another. The concept is very similar to a lot of other things we do. The part that is hard to really get your head around is uh, we rely so much on trusting other parties when we do things. There's usually a central controlling authority. That authority has a right to move the ledger. You trade your stocks on NASDAQ. NASDAQ provides information to your broker at JP Morgan. There's a ledger that some group, one group is is changing. And so what's 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 um, hard to, to deal with when you think about blockchain is uh, anyone essentially is allowed to update this ledger. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to know them. You don't have to trust them. You, you, you don't have to have any relationship with them. They just have to abide by a certain set of rules, rules that anyone is allowed to read and to uh, download on a machine and start to do. And it's all of these individual actors working in their own limited self-interest. In the case of Bitcoin uh, blockchain, you get you get coins for doing work that uh, doing all these things separately winds up allowing us to be able to rely on this central ledger for moving things back and forth. There is no one, you know, uh, entity that's saying this is now the controlling uh, uh, authority of what happens. And I think that as I've I've been it now for seven years, I think that is the toughest part to grasp. Mm -hmm. The tech itself, and we conflate it sometimes. We say, oh, this blockchain technology, it's new, it's novel, people have to grasp it. No, the tech is is simple. It's it's how the underlying mechanism works. It's this protocol for 
uh, eliminating trust in the transaction. And and um, it's not that you don't trust people. It's just that uh, the need to trust people goes away. Mm-hmm. You need to simply trust the math mm-hmm. of the way the system works. And I think that's one reason why it's it's taken a while. Once you get it, uh, because remember, humans, I, I think, humans uh, uh, are very comfortable with centralization. If you look at just capitalism, capitalism really likes centralization because economies of scale, right? So, and network effects. And so what we see is in... Throughout the entire world, bigger businesses tend to get bigger. And it's especially true in the digital age uh, where you don't have all these frictions that you have in the real world with building more factories and whatnot. Um, I think what we're going to wind up seeing as as time goes on is more businesses saying, "Okay, um, uh, if I did think about my business as one where I didn't have to be the central trust merchant. I could sort of parse that out to third parties. Maybe I could scale faster because for people to trust you, uh, we have a word for it in in modern cosmo. We call it brand, right? Brand to me is really just about trust. I trust that I know what you do, right? You're JP Morgan or your Amazon or whatever, your Caterpillar tractor. I know you do something, you do it well. So, um, uh, you can eliminate the need for brand. All you have to do is just the actual activity. Mm-hmm. What's nice about that, it means the barrier to entry to run a business can go down because you don't have to spend a billion dollars creating a cool consumer brand, right? You can just say, this: we, we do this activity for you. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't need to worry that, you know, we're not Amazon, uh, uh, where everybody has faith that they're going to ship you the package. And if they don't, you can return it and whatever. Well, you don't need to even Amazon spent a lot of money to 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 earn that privilege with consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, you could you could see the entry points being much lower in terms of what you have to pay to get there with the blockchain, because it's crazy. The thing most people are most concerned about is is their money. Mm-hmm. Right. And think about if you were going to try to experiment in this system. Uh, if you and I were thinking it up, we would probably do money last. Maybe we would have done a, a blockchain that gave people gift cards mm-hmm. or, or 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 you know holiday cards or something, mm-hmm. and and we would get to money way down the road. Of course, uh, but instead they started with money, and it's like it was great though because it was like, hey, if you can trust your money on this thing. What about putting your supply chain records or, you know, other types of everything records? else is easy. Everything else is easy. Yeah. Escrow, whatever it is. So um, and and I think I can say as of right now that that lots and lots of people do have that degree of faith in in the Bitcoin blockchain. And now, of course, uh, other types of blockchains. Wax, for instance, uses a delegated proof of stake, which is a, uh, a type of uh, consensus mechanism that doesn't work the way Bitcoin works. Um, but because of delegated proof of stake, what we call DPoS, uh, because of the DPoS mechanism for validating transactions, uh, it's much faster. Mm-hmm. So in the in the uh, in the crypto world today, as you know, there's there's two kind of uh, um, uh, uh, races people are going down. One is how do I get transactions processed faster, and how do I get transactions processed cheaper? Yep. We 
The next way that we're evolving to do that is with um, uh, what uh, what we call consensus mechanisms. So different ways to um, confirm that a transaction is valid. And, and this is proof of work, proof of stake, yes. delegated, delegated proof, of stake, proof of stake, DAGs, right? The, yes. the whole nine yards. Yep, yes. absolutely. There's a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I I like the delegated proof of stake uh, concept. It's working in several chains. It's working ours. Uh, uh, there's no doubt. I think right now, anyway, that delegated proof of stake can get you transaction speeds that they're they're not at the full blown like big commercial scale that we all eventually need to get to. But they've gone from kind of like. Test tube type transactions. I mean, you know, Bitcoin and and, and Ethereum, they're measured in uh, uh, like five, 10, 12 transactions a second. That that doesn't work for big businesses. Uh, so, you know, DPoS can do hundreds. We'll get to thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, as I think about my investment career, when when we first laid out our our uh, our desire to invest in in internet, we right away said, uh, we can't do all internet, it's too big. We'll do consumer internet. And I remember going to people and they were laughing and they're like, this internet thing is nascent, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna subdivide it further, why? And Mm -hmm. we're like, well, because we think it's gonna need to be. As As it grows, that segment ends up being pretty big. Yeah, and, and you have and you have an expertise in that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're seeing that in in crypto now. So some people call themselves uh, crypto or blockchain experts. I always say, wow, uh, it's hard to be an expert in in all. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you're seeing now branches. We're focusing now on e-commerce blockchains. Yep. Uh, some people are focusing on uh, blockchains that do uh, supply chain, mm-hmm. others that are doing just financial uh, uh, transactions and mm-hmm. payments. So uh, you're so- you're starting to see uh, this splitting off. I imagine in a few years, you might even see within a separate category like video gaming, there'll be guys who focus on virtual reality, mm-hmm. those who focus just on, on uh, trading and whatnot. What do you think is uh, um, kind of the 10-year outlook for what I'll call is the intersection of blockchain and uh, this digital gaming world, right? So as these things are coming together, I think we're seeing the very early days of the two worlds colliding. Uh, you've been at this a while now. And so where is this like 10 years from now? Well, I would say this. game Video gaming itself is a... It, while it couldn't be big, it's a sideshow, mm-hmm. right? And so when we built Wax, video gaming to us was a really good use case mm-hmm. to demonstrate how uh, a, an existing business can benefit from adopting a blockchain technology. But uh, in 10 years, uh, what I see, and that's about the time frame I'm I'm looking at when, when we started to build Wax, I said, look, guys, I think it's there's a... It'll go on for a long time, probably well past the time I'm dead. But um, there's one discrete period, the next 10 years, that looks really interesting. And what I see is a uh, like a, a conversion of three forces. Um, uh, e-commerce globally, more and more of what is done in e-commerce is digital. I would put video gaming as a subset of e-commerce, but there's many, many other things. Anything that's non-physical, like music, as you know, lots and lots of non-physical things. 
So you got e-commerce, cross-border e-commerce in particular, cross-border digital e-commerce. You have uh, the concept of trading, which uh, is, is prevalent with about 500, 600 million people globally. Those are video game people who own these in-game virtual objects. And a big part of the of the communal experience of playing video games is trading these items back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see e-commerce, trading, and blockchain. So it's at the, the, the meeting points of those three things where I see the most interesting projects being mm-hmm. born because so much of what blockchain brings um, is evident with cross-border trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest impediment to consumer cross-border trading, even for my video game business, is you've got a guy in Germany who has uh, a desire to buy a virtual item from a guy in China. So, uh, and uh, it's a $10 item. Mm-hmm. All right. So for anyone who knows anything about cross-border payments, trying to send uh, a $10 transaction uh, to somebody in another country Good luck. Where, where you need to convert currencies mm-hmm. is going to mean that that transaction amount better be pretty big mm-hmm. because after fees, not a lot is left. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges that we set ourselves for at Opskins was we said, hey, if we can allow people to uh, trade $10 items mm-hmm. back and forth across borders doing the currency conversion and leave the seller enough to where it's worth him doing it, um, we're going to do really, really yeah. well. That was the problem we solved. We solved it first doing a lot of uh, incredibly expensive bank setups and whatnot, special deals with different payment processors. It's very expensive to do. But now imagine when you're doing these cross-border payments where the currency does not need to be converted because mm-hmm. Bitcoin in Germany is the same as Bitcoin in China. Now, if you could uh, convince the video game owner in, um, in, um, in China and the video game guy in, in Germany to accept and to use this, then it's an incredibly um, efficient thing. Well, it's the whole belief that, you know, Bitcoin as the digitally native currency, right, or the the native currency of the Internet, and the Internet is a country that has 4 billion people in it, and it doesn't matter where you physically are, you know, uh, located. It's just on the Internet. We all live in one country called the Internet, and it's got the same set of rules, and that currency has a native currency, right, that is called Bitcoin. And if we can get that to become mass adopted. It won't won't be Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I created with my partners, we created a thing. Now they call it a stable coin, if you've heard the term. (laughs) Yep. Well, uh, uh, the first stable coin that we didn't call stable coin because we didn't know what that meant. We our, our thought was, how do we do what I just described but avoid the thing that your audience is saying, yeah, but it's so volatile, right? (laughs) Well, what if we could link 
a token that had all the properties, the properties we like, of transmitting instantly cross-border uh, without any trust being required. What if we could we could use that mechanism and just link it to something that people consider stable in value, like a dollar? That was how we created Tether. And and by the way, Tether today, for your audience who doesn't know it, it's just what I just described. Um, it's think of it as a Bitcoin, but it's it's linked to a dollar. So uh, if you own it, you can redeem it for a dollar, and therefore it does. It's not volatile; it doesn't go up and down much. Now there's been a little controversy lately about where are those dollars held. But um, when we were involved, they were held in a bank. Um, anyway, uh, what, what do you think is going on with it right now? I, I truly don't know. I've got yeah. no visibility. We yeah. sold the company in 2016, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but I uh, I will say though that when you start to bring what now we call these stable coins, yep. uh, cryptocurrencies linked to a particular physical or or real world asset, so they're they're not volatile. Um, that is incredibly efficient way to transfer money yep. cross border. I see in the next 10 years a lot more being done there. In fact, I the only regret I have about Tether is it never even occurred to us to patent the concept. I should have done that. <laughs> uh, but it's uh it's a great it's a great system. And of all things, Jamie Diamond over at JP Morgan, who you know has said nothing good about Bitcoin and crypto ever, and in fact said he would fire people who refer to it, he himself or his company is now creating a stable coin because he sees that, wow, this stuff is actually really useful, especially, by the way, really useful for small payments, where if you're sending a million dollar wire to Germany from the US and somebody charges you $50, you don't really care, right? But if you're sending $10 and they charge you 50, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So um, I foresee uh, uh, a lot more of what we call these stable coins evolving. And it's something that we're doing at WAX. We are, we, we're not doing a stable coin, but we're anticipating mm -hmm. that uh, people who want to do cross-border trading are going to have these tokens, these stable tokens. So a lot more people will be comfortable using them. Yeah. The, makes, the makes funny thing sense. is, uh, you know, to native like U.S. currency people, we don't think of the U.S. dollar as as having volatility. And of course, relative to other currencies, it doesn't. But it is volatile, right? I mean, the value of a dollar does change relative to the yen, relative mm -hmm. to the euro. Every day. It, it, it's changed in the last 10 years in the positive, but it could have been the negative. Absolutely. Before I uh, wrap up, I usually ask uh, rapid fire questions. What, uh, what do you think the most important company in crypto is other than WAX? Thank you for saying that. Well, there's no doubt. The most, well, company or either current. one. Yeah. Well, clearly, there is nothing more important in crypto than than Bitcoin, though it's not a company. Uh, so uh, there, where Bitcoin goes, at least for now, so goes all the other tokens. I tend to agree with that. No, I think that makes sense. Um, what regulation would you change or improve if you could? I think uh, the money services business laws which dictate state by state what is money and what is not. Uh, imagine trying to uh, uh, you know, cipher that out. I think uh, I would have a federal mandate mm -hmm. for money transmission. And I know all the constitutionalists out there are going to say, no, that the federal government's not allowed. And I think uh, uh, 
It ain't never going to happen. But uh, when you think of Europe, where now there's pan-European mm-hmm. uh, uh, legislation laws for transmitting, in the U.S. with the with the um, uh, the um, uh, the way everything digital moves, it doesn't care about borders. Mm-hmm. The idea that you have state by state saying uh, what it is, and you need state by state licenses. I think that's put a um, I put a lot of friction in the ability for this this novel new concept, these virtual items that are stores of value like Bitcoin and whatnot for, uh, I think there's, it's very hard to, for it to get, go mainstream mm-hmm. because there's even contradictory things, right? Absolutely. No, I think I completely agree. What do you think is the uh, most controversial thought you have in crypto? It's like, what do you believe that a large majority of other people would disagree with you on? <laughs> I don't, well, uh, a year ago, I would say virtually everybody would disagree with what I'm about to say. <laughs> right now, I would say, uh, most, but not all. Uh, there's this concept um, uh, in the crypto investment uh, community of protocols. You, you've mm-hmm. heard the term. Yep. So I, I was really for a long time trying to understand what the hell do they, they mean by protocol? Okay, so I think protocol means um, uh, uh, cryptos or coins that are on a separate blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, if you are using, for instance, the Ethereum blockchain mm-hmm. uh, and your cryptocurrency was invented using the Ethereum blockchain, we wouldn't call that a protocol. We would call the Ethereum coin that allows you to do that the protocol. So anytime you have a standalone piece of technology, a blockchain with its own separate rules, those are called protocols. Now. Uh, the I think the overwhelming belief in the investment community is that protocols, blockchain protocols, are the places where all the value comes from. It's preposterous. This is this is an example of um, uh, and and all VCs suffer this affliction. It's an example of what happens when we use inductive thinking. And all of us use inductive thinking. If you see something like Bitcoin, and then you see something like Ethereum, and maybe uh, something like uh, Stellar or EOS, and you say, wow, those all are standalone blockchains. Those all are what we'll call protocol chains. It must be that protocol chains have value. Well, I'll give you a great example. So take Binance with the BNB token, right? It was originally bit, it was bit built on uh, Ethereum through the ERC-20 standard. So the protocol it used was Ethereum. The BNB token started to accrue value and Binance just decided to launch their own chain, Binance yes. chain. And then they switched the underlying protocol in which they are operating on. The BNB token actually continues to accrue value. It was not hurt by switching the yes. protocol. And so if you bought into the fat protocol thesis, this belief that the protocols acquired the value, because BNB token was built on Ethereum, Ethereum should have been able to accrue value and keep that value on, and then be hurt when yes. BNB leaves. Yes. In fact, what we saw was BNB continued to accrue value and Ethereum, no change. Yes. So this, what we're talking about here is the probably the most controversial point uh, and, and uh, uh, that I see in crypto today, which is uh, uh, radical to me that you would think that the protocols have value. And so what, uh, let me just uh, give one theory for why this is the case. Um, 
uh, in in uh, in venture capital and in, in capitalism in general, it is not sufficient to create some wonderful contraption that everybody uses, that everybody loves, that is well known, that creates massive, massive value. You know what that's worth to you? Zero, unless. Zero unless you have a mechanism to capture the value. Mm -hmm. It's never sufficient to make it. You've got to have a way to extract it. So how do protocols mm -hmm. extract value? They, they don't do it very well, right? And in general, in our society, uh, the uh, businesses that extract most value are the businesses that consumers, they can be businesses, whatever, but the people who are actually using the thing recognize. Mm -hmm. It's the brilliance of Amazon where they said all of these companies put together servers and switches and data centers and software fabrics to launch a website. Why don't we give you a layer? We'll call it Amazon Web Services. You can just plug and play and use our uh, front end to get all of those capabilities, making the individual companies that provide those things invisible mm -hmm. to the business that's buying the service from Amazon. Mm -hmm. Meaning what? Amazon has commoditized all of those individual companies, the Dell server, the Cisco router, right? Mm -hmm. The data center, the content delivery network from Akamai. They've commoditized it. Mm -hmm. Well, I look at protocols as almost like uh, like middleware companies where they provide value, but mm -hmm. nobody really sees them. Mm -hmm. You don't see Ethereum as a consumer. You see your crypto kitty token. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it seems logical to me that over time, the value is going to accrue to what we call the dApps, right? The Or to the blockchains that figure out a way to do what Amazon has done and provide a service layer that is actually providing value and extracting it. The, somebody said to me, uh, the technology that is closest to the consumer or customer accrues the most value. And what I think you've seen uh, is that's been true on the internet. I think we're starting to see that's true in terms of uh, the crypto and, and token world. Um, but then you see these hybrids, right? So Amazon started out with actually a consumer front end. They were very close to the customer. The customer literally interfaced with their technology and they started to vertically integrate behind the scenes, right? All the way to now they own AWS, AWS. But AWS is close to the customer. The customer just shifted from consumer to the IT manager at the website. Completely fair point, completely fair right? point, yep. Yeah, so they've always stayed close to the customer. Here's what I think happened with this protocol thesis. I think what happened was, um, and it happened in the internet too, some of the great early businesses of the internet were infrastructure companies like Inc to me, you know, mm -hmm. and Cisco and Bain Networks and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So all these companies that were contributing and building the building blocks that ultimately would be used by the companies that built these front end facing websites. So it's uh, you do need the infrastructure. And I'm not saying the infrastructure has no value. I'm just saying 
it ultimately leaks out of the infrastructure providers and it accrues to the uh, the companies in the in the blockchain world we call them dapps uh, or even some of these blockchains themselves that are much closer to the end user they're not invisible an mm-hmm. invisible layer ultimately becomes a commodity and commodities are priced at like cost plus mm-hmm. so so that's a long way of saying uh, the answer to your question. You know, what do I think is some of the more controversial points? Um, I think it's fair. Yeah. What's uh, what's the most important book you've ever read? Well, oh, most important book. Um, Road to Serfdom. What is that? Well, that's a, uh, uh, a I guess you would call it a treatise on... Uh, the 1930s wave of socialism taking over different societies by a guy named F.A. Hayek, who uh, predicted that if we abandoned the role of traditional market-based capitalism, we would not be happy. So um, he, uh, uh, at the time he wrote it, uh, Many societies, including Germany and Russia, were considered model templates for economic growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hayek had a mixture of um, really solid economic thinking as well as uh, sociology. And he understood a very important building block of efficient markets and efficient economies, and that is the incentive layer, right? And, Pretty important. And very important, the incentive layer. And so uh, what he believed was, well, the incentive layers are not going to function in these other uh, in these other economic models. So that was probably the most influential book. I love that. Um, I got one more question, and then you could ask me a question to end it. Uh, you believe in aliens? Think they're I don't real? believe in aliens. Uh, I have no opinion whatsoever. None. You were no the first opinion. person to have no opinion. Do you? Let me ask this: uh, whether you believe or not, put that aside. Do you think it is probable that they exist? I truly can tell you, I've never really thought about it. But if I had to flip a coin, mm-hmm. is there life outside of Earth? Probably, yeah, yeah, I think that's know. fair. I, I don't know what state it is in. <laughs> don't know if they're going to buy our music, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that probably is. They're jamming out. They're jamming out to some Kanye or something. Yeah. Um, all right, what uh, what one question do you have for me? Well, when did you get in involved in crypto or blockchain? Yeah, so um, I first heard about it when I was working at Facebook in uh, 2014 about Bitcoin specifically. Uh, it was around remittance payments, um, uh-huh. and uh, I working for Facebook on. The concept? Of- no, no. So, so there was no, as far as I'm aware, no one was working on it. It was more of just people kind of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if type stuff? Um, and I literally turned to an engineer uh, that I worked with and I said, uh, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing? Is it real type? Uh, they said, no, it's stupid, pretty much. Um, I didn't Google it. I didn't pay attention. You know, it's just kind of one of many things that you're just around a bunch of smart people and you kind of hear these, you know, what some are rational ideas and some sound absolutely insane. Hey, HTML5, right? right? <laughs> Is it going to happen or not? Right. I get it. Maybe. Right. Keep going. Um, and uh, and so then uh, kind of end of 2016, uh, I started or really middle of 2016. I think I started to see more entrepreneurs talking about it. Um, and then eventually uh, my partner and I actually started out building uh, mining facilities. Um, and so my, uh, my family has been in the data center business for a really long time. And if you think of mining, it's basically a data center, just different computers and you don't have to 
sell a customer, like a company, you just rent the computing power to an algorithm. And so there was a lot of similarities to, you know, a business model that I understood. Um, and when we started doing it, I think we were just blown away with um, the idea that you could take an old business model and apply it to new technology, right? A lot of what we talked about, digitization. Um, and I'm really glad actually that that's where we started because you start at like the absolute foundation of a proof of work blockchain, how it works, the difficulty, right? I mean, that you're just looking at different things yeah, than just like some bolts. yeah you're just not looking at like what's the price today right you pay attention to it but you're also looking at other aspects of it you really start to understand you know hey here's how hash rate why it's important here's how it changes here's how difficult you know all that kind of stuff um and so from there i think we went very quickly from like ah should we do this to oh this is super cool to like oh wait there's a lot of value going to be created here to uh we probably should go dedicate all of our time to it right that happened in like less than 12 months um and so we uh we, we moved very very quickly into it and uh we, we've probably um taken a unique path in that uh we still invest in a lot uh, mostly in equity of companies um and so we've stayed away from a lot of the individual tokens uh with the belief that just the infrastructure is going to accrue a lot of value so not necessarily the protocol thesis, but more of, um, you know, there's going to be a bunch of exchanges that are built, right? There's going to be every single business model we've seen in kind of the electronic or analog world will happen in this digital world. Let's not try to be smart and let's just go find who's building that same thing in the digital world, right? And just kind of repeat that playbook over and over and over again. Um, and, and I joke and say that uh, we probably get not enough credit for uh, the discipline of just saying, let's not go try to find the smart stuff. But we also uh, will probably get too much credit for being smart at some point because yeah. we, we kept this, you know, we kept it simple. Right. Uh, and it's probably because we're a little stupid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think there's plenty of people who are at like the very cutting edge of the incentive structures of the different uh, ways that the consensus mechanisms work. And, and, and what I would call like the Web 3.0, like somebody's going to figure out the next Amazon, the next Google, right? That type of stuff. I think we're really looking at it as this infrastructure has a high probability of happening and it still has a pretty high uh, potential payoff, right? So you kind of get this, um, it's almost like a Venn diagram, whereas the, uh, the, the stuff on the absolute cutting edge, low probability of being successful, incredibly high payoff if it works, right? So we're more kind of uh, balancing the two. Um, and and uh, as we spend more and more time, we actually get more comfortable inching towards the cutting edge stuff. Um, but we really started out kind of right down the fairway, just pure infrastructure, um, high probability, and, and still high pay, uh, payout potential if, uh, if it works. Mm -hmm. And when you were at... Uh uh, Facebook, you said there was, uh, you didn't see any internal, like, uh, thinking that, hey, we should be watching this stuff? No. So uh, while I was there, we hired David Marcus uh, from PayPal. Uh, he came over to the Messenger team. He brought a couple of uh, uh, really smart people um, over, you know, kind of over a period of time. Um, and there was definitely uh, some conversations around, um, you know, remittances. Uh, the Bitcoin stuff was going on. They weren't necessarily connected, right? Like, hey, let's put Bitcoin on Messenger and use it for remittances. But they're just different conversations that you could kind of piece together. Um, also, while I, I believe I got launched while I was there, uh, was the ability to uh, almost have like a Venmo-like service on Messenger, right? So actually send fiat to somebody. Um, and so like, 
it's natural to me to kind of have been there, you know, 2014, 2015, and then see them now saying, hey, uh, you know, at least the rumors are that they're going to create this digitized token that's going to be backed by fiat currencies. Could they put it into a WhatsApp, you know, in a country like India, you know, whatever they end up doing, I think that, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the path they go, just given, you know, kind of my data points while I was there and some of the well, things they were thinking about. We pay and Alipay. It all and makes line. sense. Yeah. I, I've looked at them and gone, what in the hell have you guys been doing? Yeah. I mean, all of these integrated messaging apps with shopping and Uber services and travel services yeah. and payment services. In Asia, they're everywhere. Well, I'll take it even a step further, right? Um, uh, Ted Livingston from uh, Kick, uh, they've got, I don't know, 300 million users or something. Uh, he launched KIN, right? So K-I-N, which is a digital currency that is used within Kick as a currency. And then also there's other uh, mobile apps or developers that are using Trivia this. Trivia question. Kin. How many KIN tokens are out there in total supply? I, I have no clue, but I think there's a lot. Ten trillion. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's way more than I actually thought, right? But but I think that the reason why I bring them up is uh, this idea that uh, an existing we'll call it messaging application, right? Can have these digital currencies in them and, and used is interesting because when you go to a Facebook, for example, they have 2 billion people using their services every month, right? And so I constantly say that uh, Facebook is one of, if not the most important company in crypto, not necessarily because I even think that they're going to build the most valuable thing. But if you look at it from the perspective of what company is going to launch something that touches the most amount of people first, Facebook's probably actually going to have a good shot at that, right? And so let's say that they expose some sort of blockchain or crypto-based product to 200 million, 500 million people on whether it's Messenger or WhatsApp or just Facebook's core app. It's actually pretty important what they launch, right? And, and does that mean it's going to be sustainable and valuable? No. Does that mean they're going to fail? No. But that first exposure, depending on how it's presented, right? If it's presented as this is a cryptocurrency, it's actually really important what it so is. So here's my prediction. Okay. It's going to be super, super lame. You think so? I do. And I'll okay. tell you why. Okay. Why? They are going to come, they'll do a stable coin. Okay. Right. I'm sure of that. And they're going to, um, Ring fence it. What do you mean by that? You won't be able to trade it anywhere. It'll only be used as an in-app, uh, on-the-messenger uh, uh, client payment system. So uh, I, the trading part I haven't thought about, but what I have thought about is will it be centralized or decentralized? It'll be centralized. I'm positive. Okay. It'll be centralized. We so it'll be a token like any other in-game currency or, you know, uh, a little point system. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, look, hopefully they're listening and they say, we're going to do something better. But I have a feeling, I, I, I've seen uh, so many companies look at things like this and ultimately back away from really uh, untangling it and yep. letting it just be everywhere. But I have a feeling they're not going to be comparable with Facebook coin trading on Bitfinex. So uh, this is great. We can, we'll bet a beer. I will come back if uh, if you're right. The If you ask me what my most controversial thought was, I actually think that Facebook's coin is going to be decentralized. Now, how they'll do it, why they'll do it, there's a whole bunch of things. Proof there, of work right? or, or pause? 
I, I just can't see it being proof of work for a no. whole bunch of reasons, yeah. like a whole bunch of reasons. Right. But when I say decentralized, what I, what I mean by that is, uh, quasi decentralized. Well, people usually come back and say, you know, how decentralized, right? right. It's kind of the, it's the, run the, on Amazon web services <laughs> and Google. Great. So, 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 so what I mean by decentralized is Facebook will not be the only person that controls it. Right. In terms of like, I think a lot of hardcore crypto enthusiasts, their biggest fear with, let's say like the mass adoption of a Facebook coin is Facebook's the only one that controls it. Facebook's the only one that has any sort of um, ability to close it off and, and uh, I don't reverse think that's transactions. I don't think that's fair. Okay. I think we, we, because we just will write it off as irrelevant, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, we would like to see them really embrace the full range of, of capabilities yeah. of blockchain. But uh, I think the impulses of a giant controlling organizations in any country is not to think about let's unleash this and let whoever wants to control it do it. You know, I don't see that as, so, as their so, path. So, I'm on record saying this, but uh, the reason why I think this is I actually think the advertising-based business model is in a lot of trouble, not just for Facebook, for pretty much every large social network um, based some they attention. just set aside $3 billion, Facebook did. Oh, yeah. Just set aside $3 billion for an anticipated <laughs> judgment in three lawsuits yep. brought by uh, uh, different, different countries. Yep. And so, yes, it it does. It is under a lot of pressure. So the reason, what I think the response to that, right? And again, this is uh, the context I have here is Facebook at kind of the end of two thousands, into two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, and twelve. Uh, mobile came around, and they had to make the transition. There's a lot of questions leading into the IPO. Can they make that transition? Is it going to go well, etc. They obviously did a great job with it over time, right? Maybe they were slow to it. Maybe it didn't go exactly how they planned at first, but they eventually did make the transition. Now, what I think the transition that's going to happen for these major social networks is you're going to have to shed or reduce the dependence on the advertising model, and it's going to go more into the financial services type um, monetization strategies. Now, you brought it up early. Who's done this very well? Pretty much every single Asia-based messaging application, right? Yep. So the lines, the Kakao talks, right? All these guys have uh, done a fantastic job. They're way ahead of the curve, right? I was just in Tokyo, and people are walking into the subway, and what are they doing? They're just putting their phone up against the public infrastructure, right? And they're just paying. And so I think that uh, if this can happen, right, and if Facebook is able to uh, transition. It would probably be one of the greatest pivots, right? In you know, in the last 20, 30 years, where a company that has you know t- tens of, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue on an advertising-based model with two billion people using their services, if they can move over over a five or ten year period to become majority of the revenue off financial services, I think you and I are going to be sitting here being like, that was incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, the odds of that happening single digit percentage, right? It's just hard. I don't care how smart people are. I don't care, um, you know, how much you can kind of scope it out and say, this is what we want to go execute. It's just difficult to do. Why do you say that? Look how good of a job Yahoo did. (laughs) If you guys can see his face when he says that. (laughs) All right, listen, I really, really appreciate it. You took a ton of time out of your day to do this, William. Um, This is a fascinating conversation and uh, you, you, uh, you, you have a unique view on the world. So we'll have to do this again at some point in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Pop here. 
If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.